I'm here with Barnabas Berlin to discuss one of his articles that he's written for yet again. Barnabas has written a couple of really amazing articles for us, so I'm super excited to discuss this one, titled Remembering Srebrenica 25 Years On, an interview with Safet Vukalic. Hi Barnabas, how are you? Very well, thank you. Pleasure to be on here. Thank you for joining us. So I wanted to begin with a little bit of context for those who haven't read your article yet. Who is Safet and how did you meet him? Safet is a, a really amazing individual that I had the pleasure of meeting quite a few years ago now at an event organised by the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. He was one of the survivors of genocide that we were able to, as young people, speak to and really get to know. And it's been incredible to get to know Safet on a more human level. We're really used to talking to survivors of the Holocaust and survivors of other genocides about the work that we're doing as young people committed to remembering the Holocaust. But actually to talk to Safet just about everyday things, about what he's doing, what he likes to eat, um, Safet absolutely adores football. Now, I don't know anything about <laughs> football, but even to just talk to him about things like that, to hear him being so keen about what he was watching on the television, what his local groups were doing, was really a pleasure to, to get to know him on that more human level uh, and really then understand the, the human impact that the genocide had had. That's amazing. And I completely agree. I think one thing about working with survivors is we often feel like it's very easy to know them through the tragedy that they're talking about. But getting to know them personally is incredibly moving. And that's one of the reasons Joe and I were so excited when you said that you wanted to interview Safet and discuss this topic with us through Safet's words, which is incredible as well. So again, to provide a little bit of context, it's very difficult to summarise. I know it's probably impossible to, but for those who don't know, what was the Bosnian uh, genocide and when did it happen? So the, uh, the Bosnian war, as it was, started in 1992, following the Bosnian Declaration of Independence from Yugoslavia. Now, at this point, Bosnian Serbs, viewing their future as part of a greater Serbia, resisted this independence and started war and ethnic cleansing against people called the Bosniaks, who were Bosnian Muslims. Now, Safet was a, a Bosniak, uh, and so this war that ensued killed around 100,000 people, it's displaced over 2 million, and it led to the title of this article, The Srebrenica Massacre, which was the largest incidence of mass murder in Europe since the Second World War. That's a lot to process, and I think that's why hearing survivor testimony is so important, because we often forget that in terms of timelines, although this doesn't seem very recent, that's quite modern. That's in the, you know, sort of the modern era of how we look at history. It's post-Holocaust, post-World War II, and I think that's what's particularly frightening about it. And again, it's such an important topic to discuss in order to try and understand how atrocity occurs. Exactly. And Safet was, was 16 years old at the start of this war. Wow. And for those of us who've had the pleasure of meeting him, he's young. He's incredibly young when we're comparing to some of the Holocaust survivors that we speak to who are incredibly old and who it's, it's been wonderful to see in the news over the past few days is that they've all been getting their COVID vaccines. Amazing. Um, but these are the incredible elderly. And yet people from the Srebrenica massacre, from the Bosnian genocide, they're incredibly young. And so to see them with families and starting out families and really you're playing an active role in our society today really brings home 
just how recent this genocide was. It's only 25 years ago from 2020, and you know, 2021 will will see it being 26 years ago. So it's oh. it's yes, it's incredibly recent. And I wanted to ask you as well, when you thought about telling Safet's story and talking about what happened to him and many others through this interview, what was it for you that made you think, I want to interview Safet and write a piece that's, you know, incorporating almost how we went through that interview? Because that's a very unique way to write an article. I think it's incredibly powerful. It's very moving. What made you think that that's something that you wanted to do when touching upon this topic? So I think... Given the you know, given the really friendly relationship I've got with Safet, I've, I really wanted to be able to tell his story to other people so that others can can benefit from hearing that as well. And I'm a firm believer that the best way of learning about genocide is through the personal testimonies of its victim groups. And so to be able to take a reader through the genocide in terms of that human story, I think is an incredibly powerful way of, of sharing it. Of course, when I was structuring the piece, I wanted to take people through his life. So I, I start with talking about how old he was, his life before the genocide, moving on to his life during and how his life was impacted and how it actually dramatically changed, not only for him, but for his family. And then finally to his life after the genocide and to actually coming to the UK, building a life here. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to put across this, this idea of a life cycle and of someone's life that has existed outside of what we're just learning about in terms of the genocide. In order to understand the impact of a genocide, we really need to look at what came before. We need to look at the society that was destroyed and perpetrators attempted to destroy. Yeah. So that's, I think, was something that I found I could really explore a lot through an interview piece. Talking to Safet about the ways he saw his school, his school friends, Again, talking about football or basketball, uh, but also about how other people saw his religion. Uh, you know, religion was never on, on my mind, I believe he says at, at one point in the interview. And so to hear through his own words the ways he describes his life was an incredibly powerful way. And, and I hope in a way that people reading the article, yes, they're reading my words, but really they're reading Stafford's. You know, I completely agree. I think that when you're teaching people about what's happened, the best way is through personal testimony, survivor testimony. It's incredibly powerful, but also victim testimony as well. You know, we've seen so many cases, really fortunately, for example, in the Holocaust, where we had victims who didn't survive, but who were trying their best to document things however they could. And that's incredibly important to have that element. And that's one of the reasons I found your piece particularly powerful and really had an impact on me. One thing that I find quite sad is when I think about victims of genocide, I often think, you know, especially like you said, Safet was 16. That's a whole childhood, but also a whole sense of growing up and all those experiences that we all have the privilege of having for those of us who aren't affected by atrocity, you know, choosing what we want to study at school, if we want to go and study, if we want to get a job, all of those things, choosing to pursue our hobbies. And you mentioned Safet loves football. And I wanted to ask a little bit more about that. You say, like you touched upon, it says, Safet said that religion was never on our mind. Thinking back to his time at school, he knew well where the real differences between students lay. For someone like us who's trying to interview Safet, and I think it's great that you've got such a personal and a really friendly relationship with him as well to be able to do that. 
Do you find it difficult touching upon certain parts of what he's saying, but also what you're trying to ask? For example, you know, I know that I've had to interview a survivor before. And one thing that they said is they never had the chance to go to university, never had a chance to get a job. And that for me really hit me. And I felt quite emotional because there I was, I'm a university student, I'm working, I'm doing all of this stuff. And I have that privilege. And I almost found it quite difficult to then navigate the interview because I felt a bit like this is it's quite emotional. Were there any points like that while you were interviewing Safet? Were there any moments that you thought this is particularly something that is affecting him? Or does he let his emotions show? Because you have the benefit of knowing him in a slightly different light to how I've met him and heard his story. Definitely, yes. And it's exactly, I think that's a very important point that having known Safet for several years, I was able to talk to him in a way that was more friendly, that was, wasn't exactly a you know, an interview interviewee type situation. And I did make it incredibly clear when I first spoke to him that I had a, a load of questions that were trying to look at the content of his life, but that if any of them he didn't want to answer, or, or indeed if there were any that he, he wanted to say, uh, that that was completely on him. It's very important to me that I'm telling his story, not my interpretation of his story. And so to have him being in the driving seats, really, of what he wanted to and didn't want to talk about was incredibly crucial. Yeah. It is an incredibly emotional story, and Safet himself is incredibly passionate about this topic and about sharing his testimony, but also about looking back on what happened to him, and particularly when he links it to today. Right at the end of the article, I, I paraphrase actually something that he said to me about how learning about these atrocities exposes us to the extreme forms of suffering. And he uses a few examples in terms of the pain of a final goodbye that a mother could never say to her son, the agony of burials taking place only after remains are discovered and identified years later, and the heartbreak of a daughter coming to see her father's grave to tell him that she graduated, an event that, that he didn't live to see. I wrote this article in the summer, right at the end of finishing my master's degree. So with graduation on my own mind as well, that was an incredibly powerful topic. And that's something that, that I think we as young people can relate to a lot. Mm. In terms of those events where we're used to seeing our families, we're, we, we've got this understanding that that's how things are. But for Safet, for other people through these genocides, not only in Bosnia, but in, in Cambodia, Rwanda, Darfur, in the Holocaust, these people were denied those things that we take for granted at the moment. I'm also incredibly grateful to the, the Oral History Seminar at, at the University of Oxford, to which I've been attending a lot over the past couple of years, because they really go into discussions about how to conduct interviews uh, and analysing the responses. And emotions are a big focus at the moment in terms of writing history and understanding them. Yeah. And so it was incredibly useful to build on on some of the, the research being done there in mm. terms of recognising those emotions and understanding how we can put those forward in our, our work whilst uh, obviously maintaining um, respect for them. Yeah, that's great. No, thank you. And there's one part as well, which I really just want to touch on specifically in the article. It's this concept of 
trauma and I think it's something that we often forget to not necessarily forget we often don't have we often don't get to talk about so much because we're, we're trying to understand what happened at the time and we're not thinking so much about what's happening now and it says that Safet's life was transformed by the war and he still fears planning things in advance that for me is really heartbreaking because that's another side of this story that we have to try and understand. I wondered if you had a chance to kind of ask Safet a little bit more about um, how he feels now about what has happened and how it's affected his life. Has he got family? Has it affected him? You know, if he has his family, if he has family, his own kids or people that he knows or friends, how has that trauma carried on to where he is now? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. It's, it's not something I've spoken to him much about, so other than that, that which is in the article about the, the still being worried about, about planning things. Yeah. I think that's probably one of those elements, as, as you mentioned just now, that, that one doesn't tend to talk about. And of course, the big wonderful thing about the relationship with Sapphis is that we actually very rarely talk about the war. And a, <laughs> a lot of the, the discussion is normally on, on more, more about life. But certainly... And certainly one of the things that I wanted to, to put across in this article was about the transformative experience of going through genocide, particularly for someone so young, and how that changed their lives dramatically, uh, I mean, even to this day. And so I talk about this in the article in terms of the, uh, the fear and planning things in advance, but also in terms of what he had to do with his family uh, and the type of support that he had to take on uh, as his older brother and his father were taken away from the family, he became, uh, I believe, the eldest male uh, in the family, having to support his his mother and his sisters. And so that's that's certainly one of the things that that you you come across here. This almost this story of a sixteen year old boy who's having to navigate and negotiate coming of age mm. within this incredibly challenging scenario yeah that's really important and i'm i'm glad that you've you touched upon that in the article i think it's such an important part of understanding a survivor story sort of one of my last questions is if somebody wanted to go off and learn more about the bosnian war more about what happened in Srebrenica, do you have any suggestions or recommendations for books movies documentaries anything like that that people can take away uh, I'd say the, the, the two best places to go for, for wanting to read more about this would first of all be the, um, the, the website of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. It has uh, not only information sheets about the genocide in Bosnia uh, that, that tell you all the, all the facts and figures that you could need to know and all the narrative around it, but also life stories. So life stories like Safet, but also many others who have given their time to meet with a member of the trust and to write up their story, often with some pictures as well that can be really powerful. A few years ago for Holocaust Memorial Day, we did a project where you could write to a survivor and the survivors returned postcards. Uh, and I'm sure there's, there's details about this, this old project on the website. Um, I have one of the postcards here with me, in fact, that, uh, that came from another survivor of the Bosnian genocide. And it's, it's something incredibly powerful to see them sitting there at their table in their house in the UK here now, 25 years after the genocide. And so certainly do please go and read life stories like that. Of course, the other best place is the Remembering Trebrenica website, which is the, uh, the institution in the United Kingdom that works to uh, learn and educate about 
the, the Bosnian genocide, uh, but also to uh, raise awareness about it in terms of commemoration. And they have an incredibly moving commemorative agenda every year that talks about really learning lessons and being kind, all these sort of really important messages that we can learn from them. Uh, and so please do have a look at that. And they, they always put out a, a call to action every year about how you can support and, and make the world a better place by learning about the genocide. Thank you. That's great. And on a more personal note, I wanted to ask you this. I've been asking everybody that we've been interviewing. Obviously, we are called Yet Again. And that name came about because we were discussing how we say never again to genocide, never again to modern atrocity. Yet it is still happening. It's again and again. What do you feel like we can do, whether it's individuals or it's states or organisations, to try and ensure that never again means never again? There's several things I think that we can do. The, the first of all, and by far the most important, is that we can listen to and we can read the life stories of those who experience genocide and we can learn about their environments, their societies that were so cruelly destroyed by violence. If It's only by learning about those, by truly understanding what it was that they lived that we can really relate to that experience and then we can really be sustained in our desire and in our efforts to ensure that our societies never go down the same path uh, or even a similar path. Education, of course, is an incredibly important thing. The other crucial aspect that I think we can do uh, does lie in the hands of, of every individual and that's purely about trying to live the best life you can. It can be incredibly challenging to stand up to, to discrimination and hatred and not everyone's able to do it and that's that's no bad thing we're all individuals and that's something that we can really benefit from and, and we should draw on building on that diversity so I, I'm not going to stand up here and say that that everyone should challenge um, hatred wherever they see it although I, I do wish that everyone would mm-hmm. but the best thing I would say is to make sure that you think about how you run your own activities, how you run your house, you run your workplace, how you conduct yourself at school, at university, uh, and outside there in the community, to always think, um, what can I do to make the world a better place? Yeah, that's so lovely to hear. And that's all we have time for. So thank you so much, Barnabas. I just want to leave on the last part of your article, which is, I think, a quote from Safet, which starts off by saying... Do better than your leaders of today. Be proud of your actions and ensure your children and grandchildren will be proud of the actions that you do for your humanity. And I think that that is incredibly powerful and important. So thank you so much, Barnabas, for writing this and for talking to us today and looking forward to working with you again soon. Thanks for having me.